The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 9, 1-18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads, the grain, treads out the grain. It is for oxen that, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, but if not my, of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to your word this morning and we come in faith knowing it's not just words on a page. This is the living word. Well, this, is, this is you, our, our good and glorious God, speaking to us, beckoning us into relationship with you, drawing us to know you more fully. Lord, it's the, the instrument that you use to... Um, work through the power of the Spirit to change us and to shape us, to give us life in the first place as we trust in Jesus and to grow us in life as we grow in obedience to Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be at work right now. Lord, that you would do something with my feeble words through your powerful living word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in our culture, in our, in our culture, freedom is one of the most cherished ideals that we have. 
Freedom is this, this, this beautiful thing that, that we love to hold on to. And so really this freedom to live the way that we want to pursue the happiness that you desire. This is a kind of freedom that is really at the, the heart and center of who we are as a Western nation in this modern era. And this freedom is maybe even something that we worship by default in our society. Whether you are religious or you're not, this is an ideal that we like to hold to. And I think that that's interesting because I think we could genuinely question whether this sort of freedom has delivered the happiness that it promises. Has living for me with all the freedom that we have today. And arguably, friends, we have more freedom today than at any other time in history to pursue what you desire the way that you would like to. But has it delivered on its promises of happiness? You don't have to scratch the surface very deeply when we look at our culture. And uh, you don't have to read that many sociologists or psychologists to see that there's problems here. We have pandemics of loneliness and mental illness and anxieties. We have pandemics of hopelessness and depression. And the question that I have for us this morning as we begin to look at our text is, what if the happiness that we seek, what if it's not found in this kind of freedom? This morning, I want us to look at a different sort of freedom. I want us to embrace a gospel freedom in Jesus that we begin to see in Paul's life in chapter 9. And it's a freedom that, that seems a little bit like a paradox because we see it in the life of the apostle Paul who calls himself a slave. In the life of the apostle Paul who calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And we see as we look in his life in chapter 9, a freedom not merely to receive the goods of this world and use them for himself, use them to try to find his own happiness, but a freedom empowered by the spirit of Jesus Christ to imitate Jesus in laying down all the goods of this world, all Paul's rights to the things of this world in order that others might have life. This freedom in the gospel, slavery to Jesus, to live our lives, laying our lives down for the good of others. I think this freedom is true life. So we're going to look at this in chapter 9, but before we jump in, I want to bring you up to speed a little bit about where we are in the letter to 1 Corinthians. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. That's where we are. It's where we've been for a number of months now, and right now we're in chapter 9. In chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians is located in uh, this section that goes from chapter 8 verse 1 all the way to 11 verse 1. And this section is really Paul's response to the Corinthians' questions to him about what we should do, what they should do in respect to food sacrifice to idols. They're wondering, Paul, should we eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols? Should we not? We've had some problems in the church. We don't really know what to do. What are we going to do now? What's your answer to us, Paul? And last week, as we began looking at Paul's response to this question in chapter 8, we learned what was going on in Corinth that provoked this question in the first place. We saw that it was a city that was actually saturated with temples and with idol worship. They're all over the place, all around. Uh, they're very, very common. You could wander down the street and go to any number of temples or any number of places of worship. And some Corinthians, because of the teaching of God's word and the gospel, they had to learn this beautiful truth. They'd learned that idols are really nothing. There's one God. He's the ruler of all. 
And so these idols aren't really anything. And actually eating food sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't make me have a better relationship with God. And it doesn't not make me have a better relationship with God. I can kind of do what I, what I please here. I, I'm free as a Christian in Christ Jesus. This, this truth is setting me free to live this way or that way. This is a beautiful and glorious truth that Paul actually agrees with. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 8. And there he said, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. There's knowledge, there's, there's truth here that the Corinthians had that we're holding on to. But there is a problem because this truth wasn't at the same time worked out in love for others. It was just the truth. And not everyone in the church community had this knowledge in the same way that others did. Some maybe were brand new Christians. Some maybe just had a really tough time untangling the culture of watching grandma and grandpa and mom and dad sacrifice food to idols all day long, every day. I mean, not all day long, but you get the point. And, and they, they had a hard time not thinking that this was actually food that was really truly offered to other gods and other demons. And their conscience was really, really troubled as they saw these other Corinthians who seemed to have no problem with it going to the temple and eating the meat. So Paul says at the end of chapter 8, he says this. He says that love doesn't just selfishly act on what is true and make use of one's rights. Don't just do the true thing that's good for you. Do the loving thing that is good for all. Love is willing to sacrifice rights for the benefit of others. That's what Paul ends with in chapter 8, verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I'll never eat meat. I'll give up my rights and my freedom to eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And it's in this context, very interconnected with what came before it, that we come to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, what Paul's doing is putting his own life forward as an illustration of what he wants the Corinthians to be doing in chapter 8. He wants to show the way that he's given up rights in his own life in order to be faithful to Jesus, his master, and to serve others in the gospel. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 as we begin unpacking our first point then, getting what we deserve. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. So commenting on, on chapter 9 and the, and the whole of it, the professor of early Christianity, Margaret Mitchell, she writes this, just Paul presents himself as the perfect paradigm of the proper use of Christian freedom which freely surrenders its rights to have its own way for the sake of the entire church community and the gospel. And that's true. That's what's going on in chapter 9. But notice that in these three verses that we just read, that Paul is also doing something else. That he's simultaneously talking about rights and freedoms and using his life as an example, but also defending his apostleship before the Corinthians who had questions about it. See, the Corinthians were beginning to doubt Paul. And we know that the Corinthians 
were people that loved human wisdom and power. We saw that in chapters one and two, the way that they, they really praised the, the wisdom of the, the culture and what they saw. They praised and they, uh, they praised the, the, the strength that they saw uh, in their culture. And they were a bit embarrassed by the foolishness and the weakness of the gospel. Become embarrassed that God was the kind of God who lowered himself and became human and died on a cross in order that we might have life. And they were also becoming embarrassed by the weakness of their apostle, the one who'd come to them to show them this life in the first place, but who looked so weak. You can see in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, Paul talks about this a little bit. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom like they would have wanted him to. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, Paul didn't come in the ways they wanted. He came in what was truly powerful, the wisdom and the power that comes through the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. But we know that other teachers were coming to Corinth that weren't like Paul. They kind of fit the culture of Corinth a bit more than Paul. And in the second letter of the Corinthians, we actually see a little bit of this in the way Paul refers to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 to 6. He says, indeed, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. <laughs> you, I'm just an apostle. They're super apostles. They have the wisdom and they have the might. They fit the culture. They're attractive to you. Even if I am unskilled in speaking compared to them, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul starts to address the doubts the Corinthians have about his apostleship as he starts to use his life as an example of what it means to, to be free in Christ, to serve Jesus and give up our rights to serve others. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, surely, Corinthians, you realize that God used me as the instrument to bring you life. And in verse 3, he introduces the rest of the chapter and where we're going to go now by saying this, this is my defense to those who would examine me. The following is my defense to those that doubt my apostleship. What he's going to show the Corinthians is that the very thing they despised him for, his weakness, his poverty, the things that he lacked, these were the things that proved that he was sent by Jesus. These were the things that demonstrated the truthfulness of his apostleship. Because unlike the Corinthians who ate their meat as their right, despite its effect on the other people around them, Paul was someone who was like Jesus. Paul was someone who gave up what was rightfully his in order that others might increase in the life of the gospel. So what things were those that Paul gave up? What did he give up? What rights did he have? Well, look at verses 4 to 11, the way he continues. He says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? By the way, biblical names are tricky. 
You may have noticed this. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're just putting in English a, a kind of a translation of the, the name as it stands in the language it came from, which is why you get pronunciations like safest versus kafis. And if you know some of the language behind it, you can get the, the pronunciation a little bit closer. Anyway, that's, a, that's, a, that's for free. It's on the side. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? See, Paul talks about three things that he has a right to in this passage. Three rights that are good and and God-given. A right to marriage, right to food and drink, and a right to pay. And each of these things are are good gifts that he's talking about the context of of things that could be given up for the benefit of others, right? Food and drink, which are given up to those that, that are stumbling because of idol worship. Marriage, you know, Paul is single for the sake of the gospel. He thought maybe it wouldn't be a great idea if I keep getting shipwrecked and beaten all the time and wandering around for miles and miles, traveling all over the Roman world in the elements to have a wife and kids with me. Maybe that wouldn't be great for them. So I'll be single for the sake of the gospel. And then here, pay. See, each of these things Paul teaches are good gifts that are given by God that we as Christians have a right to enjoy. This is good for us to hear. In, in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, Paul talks about using this world's good and the rights that we have to enjoy the things in this world. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Christ said, It's good that Paul begins here affirming the goodness of of the rights that we have as human beings in this created world. It's good. It's good for us because sometimes Christians in history have started to think that maybe they'd be a little more holy, maybe please God a little bit more, if they didn't use the things of this world. If I live in asceticism, if I maybe don't get married, or maybe if I don't eat this food or enjoy this wine, Maybe God will be somehow more pleased with me. And Paul's saying, no, that's not correct. Enjoy these things and give thanks for them. These are rights that we have to live in this world and to receive these things. Because God isn't a God of asceticism. He's a God of life whose desire for us as human beings is that we'd increase in life, that we'd enjoy the world that he's created and give thanks to him for it. Paul speaks of his right to food and drink, to marriage, and pay. But he really zeroes in in chapter 9 on his right to be paid by the Corinthians. That's the point he wants to emphasize. You, see, you saw that as we read all the way through the passage. Just look at how he continues now in verses 8 to 12. It says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If you pay us, if we're supported by you, and if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? See, Paul had a right to be paid by the Corinthians. 
And to demonstrate this right, he piles on phrase after phrase, rhetorical question after rhetorical question. He quotes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and shows the way that, that whether you are an ox or you're a plumber or you're an apostle, it's a good thing for you to be paid from the labor that you pursue in life. God gives good gifts. He cares for all. And it's right for us to be supported from the labors that we do. So pastors and teachers and apostles have a right to earn their living from the work they do. So as an aside, thank you. Thank you that I am supported by Christ City Church. That I receive my salary because of you and your generosity. I think it's right and good and biblical, but I want to say thank you. It's a blessing to me, a blessing to my family. Thank you also on behalf of Alvin, who is also supported here as one who works and labors in the ministry of the gospel at Christ City Church. Thank you. These are good and right and beautiful things that are part of God's purposes for those that are laboring in ministry. And yet, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when we look at verse 12, and our second point, giving up what we deserve, we see that Paul did not make use of this right. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see why Paul doesn't make use of his right? Right there is a because. He doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus. So there's a question for us then as we look at the text. What possibly could have been going on in Corinth that would have caused Paul to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel by getting paid by the Corinthians? What was happening? Well, this is even more complicated when we consider that Paul was actually paid by other churches in other places. Right? So it's kind of, he's signaling out the Corinthians. I give him my right to be paid by you, but the church of Philippi is okay, but I won't be paid by you. So what's going on? How would being paid by the Corinthians have put an obstacle in the way of the gospel? Well, Paul refused to receive financial support from the Corinthians because of the Roman system of patronage that was just deeply rooted in the culture of Corinth. And the Roman system of Patronage was this system that worked out where a patron, somebody who had wealth and social status, could begin to take someone under their wing and help them climb the ranks of Roman society. And people wanted this. You're always looking for a patron who would kind of take you on and bring you to the next level of, of your desire uh, to, to find flourishing in life in Roman society. But Paul says, I don't want to be part of of that system. I don't want to be in the pocket of any patron uh, that is at the church in Corinth. I don't want you to be able to think of me like I'm a pastor or an apostle that now has to live out the social obligations and requirements that it would mean for a client who is now uh, uh, been blessed and indebted to a patron. That wouldn't be good for me, Paul's saying, and it wouldn't be good for you. You get the wrong idea about who I am and what I'm called to do. And it would have gotten in the way of their spiritual growth in Corinth. This happens, by the way, today as well. I don't know if you know this, but there are still people who 
some who have the privilege and the means of being able to give a lot to a local church, especially this happens in small churches, by the way, who feel they have the right then to have the church kind of do the things that they want it to do. Where they want to have the pastors, the elders in their back pocket. And they'll use that kind of a language. They'll say, hey, look, you know, I, the reality is that this church exists because of my giving. So here's what I think you should be doing. But no one, no one in any church at any point in history has been served by a corrupt leader who changes their convictions because of money that is given to them. See, so what we need at Christ City Church, what the church deans in all of history, are faithful spiritual leaders who serve Jesus and who are in their faithfulness to Jesus are entirely loyal to him and to him alone. They're governed by the word of God. They're led by the spirit of God. And they do not follow men. They live according to the word of God by the spirit. So Paul knows this and he refuses to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And he does that by joyfully giving up his right to be paid. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. There's a great irony here. The great irony is this. The Corinthians were looking down at Paul for the very actions that proved his apostleship in Jesus. Because he gave up his right to be paid, they thought of him as weak and not worth following. But in giving up his rights to be paid, he was demonstrating that he's a follower of Jesus. An apostle sent by Jesus, who in the same way that Jesus poured out his life, Jesus who was with God and is God, who became human, and died in our place and for our sins and gave up his rights and emptied himself for our salvation, Paul was an imitator of this Jesus. And yet the Corinthians looked at this in his life and said, there's better apostles than you, Paul. There's ones that look stronger. But Paul's life looked like Jesus. The Jesus he proclaimed in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. They struggled. I think they actually genuinely struggled to understand what Paul was doing. And I don't know that we can blame them too much. Because Christianity, if we're honest, I'm going to be honest here for a moment, is a pretty mysterious faith. It's often referred to as an upside-down kingdom. Right? This is... A faith where the last are first, the first are last. It's a faith where we lose our lives following Jesus to gain eternal life and to be with him forever. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Corinthians struggled with this. I don't think we should blame them. But at the same time, it's so incredibly true. And it's stamped all over the pages of history in the Christian faith. 
see, all throughout the Christian story, life exploding into the world, the resurrection power of Jesus through people who gave up their rights is the norm. Because Christian after Christian after church after church has laid down their rights for something greater. They've laid down their rights for the progress of the gospel so that more people would hear about Jesus and come to know the life that is in him. See, I want to tell you now a little bit about two different churches that I know. I want to illustrate this just talking about two different churches. I want to illustrate this idea that that freedom to love and to sacrifice our rights for others is true life. There's two other churches that, that I know really well. I attended one and I was really close to people that were at the other. I still know uh, pastors in both churches. I know many of the members in both of these churches. I'm intimately acquainted with what's happening in these churches. In both these churches, they were in poor, they are in poor neighborhoods. Both began as commuter churches uh, a long time ago. Both started as mostly kind of white, suburban, middle-class uh, commuters going to these places where the churches were actually located. And as the years went on, these churches changed how they were operating in very different ways. As years went on, one of these churches held on to their right to live far away from difficult places. They kind of just doubled down on the fact that they were a commuter church. We don't want to live in this neighborhood. Actually, they talked a lot about safe neighborhoods and the importance of, of having big enough spaces to raise their children in larger homes than could be offered in that neighborhood. Focused a lot of their attention on the, the need to have safer parks and the parks that were available in the neighborhood where the church was. But the other church, they did the opposite. They saw the need and the brokenness in their community. They led a campaign to move into their neighborhood, into the neighborhood that the church was in, into this bad neighborhood. And the congregation responded in faith. Many people in that congregation, people that I know and have been to their homes, they bought these shoddy old homes in this broken down neighborhood. They began to repair their fences, to fix their neighbor's fences. They began to, to love those around them. It was a neighborhood that was full of strip clubs. So prostitution was a big thing. Strippers were uh, uh, all over the place in that, in that part of the neighborhood. And many in the congregation began to start uh, these new ministries that were basically focused on helping to retrain women that were caught in this cycle of abuse and help them have a different kind of career, get a leg up from where they were and actually uh, be able to go in a different direction and have a better life. Many began to love their literal neighbors by supporting the homeless, by reaching out to the poor and suffering, those who were just neighbors to them, literally next to them, and to love them in the gospel, to show hospitality to them, to throw block parties for them. And they lived as agents of reconciliation in a deeply racially divided neighborhood as ministers of Jesus. See, every one of these people had the right to stay in the neighborhood that they were in. They had the right to keep their comfortable homes. They had the right to keep their money for themselves. But in doing so, they wouldn't have seen the gospel of Jesus Christ radically bring life to this neighborhood. And it has. The city that this church is in has even recognized the way that this church has had such a massive impact on that particular neighborhood through its sacrifice, 
through its love and through its care. My question is, which of these churches looks more like Jesus? Jesus, who was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus, who entered into our suffering as a human being, and he didn't need to. Who gave his life for us in love, dying to his own rights and literally dying so that we could have life. See, in history, there have been countless Christians who have imitated Paul. Countless Christians who imitated Paul, who says at the end of this section in 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of me as, as I am seeking as an apostle to show the way that Jesus lived, giving up my rights to see others live. And these Christians, they suffered. They suffered often horribly. You know, countless missionary stories and stories of pastors and regular Christians who've given up things that they cherished and even experienced the suffering of the loss of, of children and spouses. They've experienced the loss of, of meaningfully referring to a place in this world as home. Living somewhere else for 30 or 40 years and, and just feeling so dislocated. They've suffered loss to see others have life. And their freedom to sacrifice their rights for the good of others has been used by God to bring life into a world enslaved in death over and over and over again. See, Christianity has been changing this world for 2,000 years through the sacrifice of Christians like these. And my prayer for us is that we would begin to do the same. I see this already in our congregation in numerous ways, but my prayer is that we would only grow in it. That we'd be a church that is so much filled with the life of Jesus that it is our joy to be his servants, our joy to be his slave, and for the sake of the gospel, to give up what we have as our rights to see others increase in life. So I'm wondering this morning, <clears throat> what might the Spirit be calling you to do, to be an imitator of Jesus. See, in the providence and the kindness of God, some of us in this congregation have money, some have reputation, some have energy, some have lots of rest and time on our hands, some have a large retirement, some have a house or a condo that by the grace of God we've been able to own, and many, many other things. And, and these are all God's good gifts to you. And you have a right to enjoy them, and you should. Praise God. Receive them with thanksgiving. But my question is, how are you using your freedom as a Christian not simply to use these things for yourselves, but to use them as instruments of bringing life to others in imitation of Jesus? How might you even... What might the Spirit might even call you at times, just like Paul, sometimes to even give up these rights in order to be participating in the work of Jesus in the gospel? See, God loves to use our sacrifice as a means of giving others life. And this is what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. 
It's what he wants them to understand that they are to do for one another. And it's what he shows them in his own life in chapter 9. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, when he says that though, I don't think he's hanging his head like Eeyore, right? And he's saying, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Right? I don't think he's moping around calling the Corinthians to this action. I think what he's doing is he's calling them into true life. I think he's excited about it. He says, you want to know how to live that's truly full of life that will change everything that you ever imagined? Follow me. Be an imitator of me as I am of Jesus. There's a greater way to have life and flourishing in this world than just using your freedom to have your rights and use it for your own happiness. There's a better way and there's a greater life. And he's inviting them to join him in it. And he knows freedom to give up what's yours is actually not loss. Christ City, giving up an imitation of Jesus is not loss. It's unbelievable gain that's worth boasting about. Look at our last point, getting more than we deserve in verses 15 to 18. Paul says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See, Paul is a servant of Jesus. He calls himself a slave of Jesus. And Jesus commanded Paul to go out and to preach this gospel. But Paul's not upset about it. He boasts that he gets to preach. He's excited that he can do it for free in imitation of Jesus laying down his rights to serve others as an instrument that brings life to others. Why is that? Well, I think it's because Paul's reward is to see the good news about Jesus going forth and watching the Holy Spirit take the labor that Paul is laboring in and make it grow and bring life into these places that he's been like in Corinth. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I represent the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He's just happy to see the gospel go out without any restrictions of any kind and bring life. He gets to stand back and he just glories in the fact that God has allowed him to be a minister of this incredible grace that brings life to others. I think Paul is overwhelmed by that because he's so aware of who he truly is. He knows his sin. He knows that he doesn't deserve this great blessing, that he's someone that used to persecute the church of Jesus, but has been redeemed by his grace and is now used as an instrument to bring life. He's amazed. He's overwhelmed at the work he gets to do. You know, I I remember small moments in my life of being able to stand back and appreciate a work well done. There's a certain joy in seeing labor that's been, been worked at produce a harvest. 
For me, in an earlier life as a carpenter, it was rewarding to stand back at the end of the day and to see that walls had gone up where before there were none, to see a roof line in place that was straight most of the time, uh, when before there wasn't, where there wasn't any, and to just take satisfaction that the labor was good. I think for Paul, it's a little bit like this, where, where he got to labor all day in God's field. You've got to stand back in the mystery of the nighttime, watch the crops grow, as the Holy Spirit took what Paul was working at and brought life. He was glad to lay down his rights to be paid because it meant those gospel walls and roof line were built properly without any hindrance at all. And Paul just rejoices that God's gracious to him to let him participate in this. You know, here in this church, the elders and I feel the same way. In a much lesser degree, I think we feel the same way as Paul. And I hope that you, in your life, in your labor for Jesus, feel the same way as well. Where we don't really need anyone to tell us how sinful we are. You know, like there's, there's a great recognition in our part as elders, at least, of the imperfection of our labor and all the problems we bring to the work that we do. But at the same time, we're over, overawed that God would use us as instruments that bring life to others. It's amazing. And it's not because in, in us is anything special at all. I don't believe that. I know Jonathan doesn't believe that. I know Doug doesn't believe that. It's because in the beauty and the, the graciousness and the kindness of God, he's the kind of God that through his Holy Spirit causes even imperfect people and their futile, faltering labors to produce growth for his church. Because it's the kind of God that he is. He gives the growth in his church. We just get a labor and be thankful. It's Paul's joy to do his part and watch the Holy Spirit bring life. What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel, so as not to put stumbling blocks in the way of others as life goes forth. There's still more reward than this. There's still more of a reward in serving Jesus and laying your life down for him than just the joy of watching God at work. Though so that is an incredible reward. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And see, Paul writes, therefore, God has exalted him. See, it's because Jesus first poured himself out in sacrifice to death that God exalted him. That God exalted him in this glorious resurrection, life, exaltation, and blessing reigning over all things. And the reality is that us too, as we follow Jesus, 
that we will reign with Jesus, that we will experience as we die with Jesus, as we lay our lives down in imitation of him, taking up our crosses, denying ourselves daily, following him, that we will rise with Jesus, that the blessings and the reward of eternal life a future inheritance with him is ours. See, the fullness of life that we long for as human beings, it can't be found in secular freedom of merely living for ourselves. It just can't be found there. Life that is truly life is found only in the freedom that comes through the gospel. The freedom of receiving life through Jesus who came to this earth to suffer and die that we could be forgiven and saved and united with him and filled with his life and love. See, Christ City, there's good news for you this morning. Jesus can set you free from just living for yourself. Jesus can set you free to be full of his love, to experience true life in living for his glory and the good of others. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, we are most fully alive when we're empowered by the spirit of Jesus, imitating him and laying our lives down. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This morning, if you're hungering for real life, there is good news for you. There's good news in a Savior who has first given his life to you and for you so that you can receive life from him. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to just ask that you would you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, would you work in each of our hearts this morning to lead us to repent of the things that we've been holding on to, hoping in life from, that can't deliver on their promises. Father, would you churn us from the ways that we hold on to this lie in our culture of believing that, that freedom and our freedom is really just to live for ourselves, that happiness will be found there. Lord, would you free us instead to be full of your life and love and to live in imitation of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Would you show us in your kindness where your spirit would like us to give up our rights to serve others, where we can grow as a church that powerfully promotes and expands a gospel of life in Vancouver as we follow Jesus. We ask these things for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.